This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Your business is screening the world's sport to paying punters and then COVID stops almost all of it in its tracks almost overnight. This week we ask a senior Sky Sports executive, how did you handle that? And it isn't over. A COVID cloud still hangs over the weirdest Olympics ever due to kick off in Tokyo and on our screens in less than 100 days. Also, we look at just how much help is the Official Information Act if you're trying to work out exactly where and how our money flows into the media and how travel bubble delight on Monday Scenes of intense emotion was briefly burst by a border breach fright last Tuesday. How did a vaccinated border worker catch COVID and is the trans-Tasman bubble in trouble? But before all that, we take a look at the extraordinary money-driven proposal for an elite European football league of super clubs. Their own fans hated it, players past and present said no way, and the outcry in the media helped to kill the idea stone dead. We welcome to One Sport. There's outrage across football tonight after the announcement of a breakaway European Super League condemned as greedy and embarrassing by some of the game's greats. Big name English Premier League teams... Among that was how the sports news kicked off on TVNZ's One News last Monday. And it's not often that European football leads the sports bulletin on our 6pm news here. But as we heard there, it wasn't because of anything that happened on any football pitch anywhere in Europe. The action was behind the scenes in boardrooms and it rocked the entire world of sport, not to mention the entertainment industry and the media industry. It was a specialist reporter in sports and business, Tariq Panja of the New York Times, who broke that story last weekend. And a breakaway league featuring the most popular teams in the UK, Spain and Italy would have upended elite football all over the world. Two former captains of one of the clubs backing the big breakaway, Manchester United, reacted like this. Absolutely disgusted. This is, for me, a war on football. Now, these long-retired players have a voice and big social media followings, but they don't sway modern sports and media companies. The people who do are the people who came up with this plan, who were described like this by Carl Anker, a reporter for the subscription-based digital sports news platform, The Athletic. And now what we have is just more rampant, boring hypercapitalism by creatively dull people who, when they're given a choice between protecting those who want some entertainment and just their own pathetic, boring interest in making money. Among the media companies looking on, incidentally, was the big beast of pay TV here, Sky TV. Each year had broadcast the European Champions League exclusively for its Sky Sports subscribers. And that competition would be gutted if the top teams in Europe break away into a new league. We'll find out more of what they made of that a little later. But just like the ex-players turned pundits in the media, the fans of the clubs themselves also, almost universally, condemned the idea of a new league. And on Wednesday morning, the deputy sports editor at The Sun newspaper in London, Martin Lipton, told Morning Report the plan was already falling apart. This is a thing that's, that's, that's grown from an idea into a full concept and then becoming uh, a bag of wind in the space of three days. It's a remarkable football story. It shows that... that Nothing is uh, is permanent in football. Everything is transient. But this looks a dead duck now. And by the end of that day, the not-so-carefully-laid plans of the Dirty Dozen, as they'd been labelled by the UK media, had completely unravelled. All six of the UK's clubs that had backed the idea had backed away from it, with reports that two of the three in Spain were about to follow suit, with their own fans urging them on as well. So that begs a question then. Who would the idea of a new league have appealed to? 
Well, Tariq Panja, the New York Times journalist who broke the story in the first place, told the Irish sports podcast Second Captains they had a completely different type of fan in mind who could be reached via digital media platforms. What these guys are looking for is kind of the new football, I guess. These um, fans in, in faraway places who uh, consume uh, football as, as, as entertainment, nuggets of entertainment, are willing to put their hands in their pockets and, and buy things, uh, maybe buy TV rights um, to watch these guys. Tariq Panja said that the fans interested in those nuggets of entertainment include a generation of people all over the world who've grown up playing football computer games where you can pair up the most glamorous teams in Europe as often as you want, effectively simulating what real-life clubs were now proposing to create for them. And aside from exploiting that for profits, another driving force in all this was the disruption of COVID-19. For more than a year, the stadiums of these top teams have been empty, their competitions disrupted, and all revenue from sources other than broadcast deals has shrunk. And outside the global game of football, there's no bigger event more buffeted by the chaos of COVID-19 than the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, which is still called that, even though the organisers long ago ran out of enough 2020 to actually stage it. They're now saying it'll be held in July this year, though, kicking off less than 100 days from now, But it will be, as the New Zealand Herald put it this week, the weirdest games ever, with few fans, no overseas guests, and even the bigwigs in the IOC won't be able to bring in their customary entourage for the fortnight. And there are still those who already reckon the Olympics in July in Japan is a terrible idea. The British Medical Journal said the organisers are ignoring science, and Professor Michael Baker from the University of Otago told Newstalk ZB's Sunday session show last weekend, Kiwi athletes probably shouldn't go. The Olympic Committee and all their backers and um, committees around the world should just think about what this is symbolising if they go ahead with the Games at the moment. How far off do you think the world is from being able to safely hold an event like this, Michael? Uh, I think uh, the, the suggestion of postponing it for another year I think is sensible. But another year's delay for the Olympics is the last thing Sky TV wants. This past year, because of COVID, they've struggled to keep sports on the air in order to keep their subscribers. Because most major competitions, which usually fill up the hours on their huge number of live sports channels, were suspended. Well, for more than a decade now, Tex Texera has been Sky's Director of Sport and Broadcasting and then its Chief of Content. And for 20 years before that, he worked for South Africa's preeminent pay TV outfit, Supersport. Last week, Tex Texera was appointed to a brand new role at Sky, Director of Live Sport Innovation and Community Engagement. I asked him what that job title actually means, but first, was he startled this week to see those billionaires backing the elite European Football League this week forced to back away from it within three days? We had heard for some time uh, the bigger clubs wanting to have greater control, especially greater financial control, but we were surprised it actually got to this point where there was a list 10 or 12 clubs who had committed to this supposedly, so that, that, that was a little bit of a surprise that it had gone this far. Amazing to think of these, you know, billionaire owners, some of them, and really like John Henry, the Fenway Sports Group, they own Liverpool Football Club and also the Boston Red Sox. And he was, you know, doing a social media video, basically groveling for forgiveness from the Liverpool fans. Did you ever think you'd see anything like that? No, this is just a, 
a stark reminder for everyone, including us, and that is it, the fans. The fans, it's all about the fans. If you have too much of anything, you, you get bored with it. You know, the All Blacks play in the Springboks once or twice a year is great, but four or five times a year, it loses what it, what it stands for, you know, the tribalism. So I'm glad the fans have spoken, and I'm glad that these uh, powerful chairmen have realized if you're not doing what the fan or the customer wants, they will tell you straight, and they can, they can change your business. And we need to listen and, and, and respect that. Yeah, one of the things that seemed to be common among supporters who reacted against this was the kind of lack of jeopardy. This would be a closed shop. Um, James Corden, the British broadcaster, hosts a talk show in the US. He did this big, long monologue talking to us, explaining this to them. They've taken the jeopardy out of it. But his audience didn't kind of get it. But, I mean, they've got that in the US, haven't they? Really popular NBA, NFL. These are franchise things where even if you perform poorly, you'll, you'll be there next year. And indeed, we have this here, don't we, with Super Rugby, um, the A-League, which you also broadcast on Sky? You hit the nail on the head there, Colin, because that's exactly what they were modelling. This uh, is on the NBA model, which which is they would all come together, 12 clubs and then potentially up to 15. They would take all this money and then share it amongst them uh, evenly. But um, it's incredible, without mentioning names, some of the debt that some of these clubs had on their books. I can understand why for them they felt that you know this was the, the best way forward was to have this guaranteed revenue to help offset uh, their debt. But um, again, sadly, I don't think that that's what football in particular uh, is all about because it is about the smaller teams, you know, getting the opportunity. And if you talk about, you know, the rugby and example rugby World Cup, Colin, and, you know, Japan beating South Africa and, uh, you know, Fiji, what they've done and, and so on, uh, on whatever stage that may be. Andrea Agnelli from the Juventus Club in Italy, he, he has still been holding this line, even as the project seems to be collapsing, that, the next generation of fans and the coming generation of fans, they're a bit different. They play football computer games, which, you know, you can easily match up Liverpool and Madrid or something in the way this league would. He even talked about those serving as a kind of simulation and they were working on something that would actually deliver what this um, this kind of digital native generation might enjoy. Innovation is now part of your new role in Sky. Is he also right that actually there is there is also a coming generation of fans whose, whose taste might be completely different? Yes, so I think he is right there. From the millennials and you work your way down to Gen Z, you know, they are potentially uh, consuming very differently and or potentially not consuming sport at all. Their interest might not necessarily be uh, the same as ours in consuming the way we do, especially long form. Their attention spans might not be the same. Financially, they might not be able to afford what we can. They might not have the same amount of time as we have. Hopefully, what they do have, though, Colin, is, is heroes, you know, and, and people that they look up to. And that is something we should work on. Hopefully, what you're looking for, and that is you see sport as, as, as something good. Sport needs to be seen as something good uh, in your life, in whichever way you are consuming or attracted to it. Well, your new role, Tex, um, Director of Live Sport Innovation and Community Engagement, so quite a bit to fit on the business card there. I can understand why something like a public broadcast or a major free-to-air one, for example, might need to make you know a priority of community engagement. But you know, for Sky, I would have thought, look, it's kind of a simple commercial transaction you're offering to customers, buy it, don't buy it. Do, do you really need to worry so much about engaging with the community or just offering them what you think they want? Yes, and look, you know, Colin, we, that word community can be used quite extensively because for us, we look at communities, you know, for example, schools, the, the schools communities that we'd like to to work with, in, again, in a positive, proactive way. There's um, 
there's communities we could look at as at the metros in New Zealand. Those are a type of community, whereas rural New Zealand is potentially a very different community. Then we have Pacifica community. We have the Murray community. Uh, women's sport, and you could look at that as a community. It's not a one-size-fits-all. We need to work closely with them. And we, we think there's a lot of opportunity out there with, for example, clubhouses. And the opportunity to work with a lot of these clubhouses around New Zealand and bring Sky to the clubhouse, but also have, have the clubhouse become more important and more relevant in young people's lives. Well, the, the statement last week that announced your new role said uh, Tex will have a special focus to drive equality in women's sport and to encourage participation and engagement in sports across the country. And uh, it also says uh, build strong relationships uh, with a particular focus on Pacifica and Māori leaders in sport. So what sort of changes do you think you have in mind to achieve those things? I think, look, with the women's sport, I think we've, we've actually um, embarked on this route already. Uh, this year for the first time we'll be showing the entire Farrah Palmer Cup uh, in one form or another, be it on Sky or, or on some of our uh, streaming platforms. So that's another advancement that we've made with women's sport. On camera where we're sending um, our entire presentation team going to the Olympics is, is female and that's pretty exciting and it's the first, that we, first time we do that. We're also looking at creating a lot more uh, of our content around women's stories and be it our national teams, be it provincial teams, there's just a lot we can do. So we talk about women's and men's sport as being side by side. If we're doing one thing for the one, we're making sure we're doing the same for the other. And does that extend to uh, things like on screen, like panels, uh, will be you know, mixed genders or mixed ethnicities and you'd actually be looking at that and making sure you're not skewing too far in one way or the other or even the production teams and all of that, are you, are you going to be looking at those areas as well? Yes, we are. And at the same time, we've also got to remember that we have our customer base that is used to and, and pays us to to watch certain things. And so what we need to do is is find a balance that works for our currently current engaged customers, but also uh, creates an opportunity where people, maybe not necessarily uh, in the current customer base, but maybe sitting on the fringe, or, or, or you get casual fans that look and go, hey, actually, that's interesting. I'm glad you've done that. Actually, I'm now interested uh, more in the sport because of that individual or because of the changes you've made. So um, it's not something that we can change overnight, Colin, but I think what we're doing now is just making it more defined. Well, in the statement announcing your new role, uh, your boss, Sophie Maloney, who's um, the first woman at the top at Sky, uh, she said, we saw during COVID-19 what it feels like to have no crowds in sport. None of us liked it. Um, look, seeing as you have this sort of uh, live sport innovation role now as part of your job title, will the experience of live sport on TV change as more of these global sports come back? Colin, very good question. From an on-screen point of view, I don't see a massive change in innovation in terms of from a traditional platform. Um, I do see some changes, and, and Sky is continuing to do that, um, be it with some of the uh, data and analytics that we've started introducing. We're also looking at things like player mics, and we've got player cam, and we will continue to, to innovate in that space. But I think the biggest opportunity to innovate is potentially either on the second screen, dedicated apps which are focused and giving an alternate option to what mainstream uh, TV is doing. We also think that innovation might be something along the lines of uh, getting you to attend a game and watch a game and you get some prizes, you know, looking at, at, at players and getting really behind the scenes with an athlete and understanding what makes them tick. Music and sport is something that we, we believe, you know, works really well and we think that we can do more in that space. 
I, I think innovation is, is not so much about changing what's on the big screen. Uh, I think the innovation is coming, you know, as a parallel opportunity to that. Well, what I'm trying to achieve, Colin, is I'm trying to get together with the sports codes. We're trying to get more people to go to games, to go to stadiums. We're trying to get more people to watch uh, content, be it on TV or on their devices. We're trying to get more people to engage and participate in sport and to have fun. And we've talked about innovation there, but I guess you had to innovate or maybe more accurately improvise. If I take you back um, 12 months, uh, you know, the lockdown was on, sports suspended. I mean, here all around the world, I was looking at uh, getting those bulletins, just wholesale changes to the schedule. You have all those channels to fill with. Suddenly just about all your key sports must have been, if not knocked out entirely, then, you know, completely changed in terms of scheduling it. I mean, you must have had ulcers at that time just trying to find ways of keeping those channels full and on air and praying your subscribers wouldn't all just um, wouldn't all just scrap their subscriptions. Absolutely. I mean, Colin, when we look back now, it's incredible what we were able to turn around in such quick time. Uh, and, and a huge uh, thank you to our technology team at Sky who just in a very short period of time were able to get 500-plus people able to work remotely. And think about that, you know, that's not easy. Not only able to work remotely, but able to access our schedules, able to access um, some of our archives. We did have a dedicated core team that was allowed to, um, essential workers that was allowed to be at Sky. And again, huge thank you to that team of roughly 30 people that, you know, spent, you know, up to two months at one point, just that's all they did. They lived and breathed that every single day, weren't allowed to be in contact with anyone, just had to spend their time at Sky and make sure they could service the entire uh, business. But also what happened, Colin, was just the creativity that was able to flow from our teams. So, for example, with rugby, just how the Players Association came forward and how the RPA went and said, we're here, we want to help you. And all of a sudden, we got this incredible access to players and the players were so supportive and, and realised, look, if we're going to be at home for a while, how can we help? Yeah, even creating entirely new shows with people, with athletes who themselves were having to, like a programme like Isolation Nation. Correct. You guys missing rugby? Well, so are we. Welcome to Isolation Nation. Say hi. Hi. Four walks, just like that. Here's my baby. You're not being me, bro. Trying to keep fear amounts of normality to this isolation period. I mean, that, and that was, that, that, that was incredible. And that was us in New Zealand rugby. And every week we had to tweak the concept, Colin, because every week we were like, oh, so we actually can do that. Well, let's try that then. Um, and every week there was something new that we, we learned. And if you think about it, all those shows were edited and packaged remotely. I mean, that, that's just in, you know, incredible to be able to do that in a, such a short period of time. I suppose I'm talking about this almost as if, you know, it's all over and everything's returning to normal. But, I mean, for you, I'm, I'm sure that it isn't. I mean, for example, less than 100 days away, the 2020 Olympics in 2021, presumably you really want them to go ahead. To go back now, I, I just don't think that'll happen. I totally respect and understand that how great the risk is because, you know, how dangerous COVID is. So our team's can uh, operate uh, within a bubble that is safe for our people and that is a priority that we have and as is the priority of athletes for the NZOC and I think we've got really good plans in place and protocols in place to be able to to achieve that. 
there would be certain events that we would miss if we didn't have a team on the ground uh, to root all the feeds. Then there's also the uh, potential that we'll miss a lot of the Kiwi emotion um, once these athletes have finished competing and we will never get uh, you know, the joy of winning or, or potentially the joy of not winning. Uh, we'll never get those moments again. Um, and so we weighed this up quite extensively and we scaled our team down quite dramatically. So we've only got 17 people going up now based in Tokyo. Uh, most of the team will literally uh, move from one location to another and that's it. We've got a, another team that is actually producing the rugby for the host broadcaster, the modern pentathlon and the uh, football qualifiers working directly with the Olympic Broadcast Services uh, in delivering the rugby to, to the whole world. There's a, there's a lot that's been put in place to achieve this column, but I'll be honest with you, there's a couple of extra grey hairs uh, that have come along. But just to, to finish off, perhaps we'll go back almost to where we started. I mean, you mentioned there actually rugby. I mean, rugby is, you know, the key thing for you, such as perhaps the um, the European football we've been hearing about is, is uh, you know, the, the key property in that part of the world for broadcasters and, and media companies. Um You've still got the exclusive rights to the All Blacks, which has kind of un- underpinned a lot of Sky Sports subscription appeal. That they've even got their own debates at the moment with you know the American investors, Silver Lake, you know, wanting to uh, buy into the All Blacks. People warning about that. Some of the players saying they don't like it. So echoes there of what's played out in Europe this past week. Um, I think the rugby union even has a, a stake in Sky these days. Do you have any say in the All Blacks and and how they structure themselves financially while you're still the exclusive uh, broadcaster? F- for them? I, I don't think it's a case of do we have a say, but I do think as, as part of our partnership agreement, anything as substantial as, as a decision uh, like this, New Zealand Rugby, uh, who are great partners, by the way, w- would come and consult with us. But at the end of the day, obviously, it is their business. They need to run rugby in New Zealand. We obviously continue to, to believe and respect that they are doing the best for the game. We, we understand that obviously there's, there's talks underway and there's you know, numerous parties involved and we understand how important it is for the players to understand what their future looks like um, and as important as it is for the fans and whatever decisions are made need to factor in you know, the long-term future. That was Sky TV's newly appointed Director of Live Sport Innovation and Community Engagement, Tex Texera, who was formerly Sky's Director of Sport and Broadcasting. And you can hear more from him about all that in the online version of the story. That's on the MediaWatch page of the RNZ website, the RNZ app or our podcast feed. Just look for the title, Coping with the Chaos that Crushed Live Sport. As we've heard, most football fans seem pretty pleased that a cartel-style bid to rejig the European football that hundreds of millions of people all around the world care about had been knocked back. But the sport is facing a reckoning in the wake of the COVID-19 economic slump, so maybe it won't really qualify completely as a good news story just yet. But Hayden Donnell now takes a look at a story that did seem to please reporters around the country last Monday. The last year has gone by in a hail of bad news. There have been terrorist attacks, mass shootings and insurrections. Most of all, there's been a pandemic sweeping the globe, causing countless deaths and endless misery. So it was something of a shock to switch on the news on Monday night and see this. Bursting a bubble never felt so good, so heartfelt. I'm just so grateful to be back. Wish one of my girls was back home. It was this little guy's birthday yesterday. (laughs) But they made it today and that's all that counts. 
For once the news was bursting with joy, disgorging itself of raw happiness and relief. Over on News Hub, grandparents were meeting their mokapuna for the first time. This is the first time meeting Jordan. How do you feel? Yes. Oh, we're very emotional. <laughs> we waited so long. It's just... Children were seeing their dads. <laughs> and duty-free shop owners were seeing cash signs. All the shops open and it's super exciting. The day wasn't just joyful though, it was also weird. This is how Australians celebrated the bubble opening at Melbourne Airport. Earlier on we even had a bit of interpretive dance as you were mentioning. So we had some of the Melbourne Airport people uh, coming out dancing with massive balloons to symbolise that trans-Tasman bubble and they were jumping around, jumping for joy clearly. If you couldn't get a clear mental image of what was going on from that audio, just picture a troop of mimes swaying expansively while carrying clear Swiss balls. Meanwhile, back in New Zealand, all the emotional reunions were happening against the backdrop of classic songs. Here's breakfast Wilson Longhurst describing what was in store in Auckland. And they've got something else to look forward to once they arrive as well. A nice performance of Welcome Home uh, by Dave Dobbin by a local choir here. That wasn't just for one flight, though. The spin-off Stuart Salmon Lund was stationed at the airport as well. He catalogued his mental descent as he listened to Dobbin's 2006 hit dozens of times in a row. His first update went like this. We're into the 25th minute of a constant performance of Dave Dobbin's Welcome Home as the first arrivals from Jetstar Flight JQ201 step into the Auckland International Airport arrivals area. The second read. Keep it coming now, say the lyrics to Welcome Home as the song enters its 38th minute of live performance outside the arrivals area. The third came in the form of a resigned, matter-of-fact tweet. The marathon performance of Welcome Home has wrapped after a tight 60 minutes as the final arrivals from JQ201 enter the terminal. Before one final entry. Spoke too soon. The song started again for the next flight. At least he wasn't in Queenstown, where passengers emerged red-eyed and blinking into this scene, captured in video by the Otago Daily Times. Other Aussie arrivals were accosted with the chorus line, Take Me to the April Sun in Cuba which seemed ambitious given how much effort had gone into just getting them to Queenstown. Overall, though, the day of reunions was a breath of fresh air in a year that's had a lot more downs than ups. That didn't just go for the people who watch and read the news, but for those that report it. AAP reporter Ben Mackay is an Australian stationed in Wellington. He was at Wellington Airport for the day and described the experience like this. Yeah, I, I had such mixed feelings about Monday. I, it was such a, a joyful, enriching experience. experience. But I guess my, my own experience did flavour that. I, I realised I had a bit to process because I, I hadn't been able to go home for more than a year, trapped in you know, what I call my paradise prison. Um, but now I could and it became possible. So there's no question it, it flavoured my reporting. So after a couple of you know pretty emotional interviews with other people, uh, it's sort of you know a way of saying that I, I was a bit of an unprofessional mess at the airport. But I think that, that, that the episode you know it feeds one of my my beliefs as a journalist. That is that no one's unbiased, and we carry our experiences into each situation. We shouldn't pretend otherwise as well. I think it added to, to, to the coverage, and I try to lean into my gut feeling for stories and angles. And my gut on Monday was telling me that this was a day to sort of wallow in the emotion. For a day it seemed like New Zealand was healing. Things were looking up, we had momentum, we had our Australian cousins back. We had... 
How did a vaccinated border worker catch COVID and is the trans-Tasman bubble in trouble? COVID again. Most of us, including journalists, were just happy to get a little bit of time off the pandemic. Hopefully one day soon, that respite will last longer than 24 hours. Hayden Donnell reporting there on how travel bubble delight on Monday in the media was briefly burst by a border breach fright last Tuesday. At this time last year, we were in the midst of a level four lockdown and most media companies couldn't say what the short-term future was for them, let alone if they would still be in business in the medium or long term. The government unveiled a package of measures at the time which it valued at $50 million and at that time the Broadcasting and Digital Media Minister Chris Farfoy called it an adrenaline shot to ease the immediate financial stress among media companies. Now most of these measures, it was noted at that time, would give broadcasters a handy break such as cutting their contributions to their publicly funded programmes and waiving the fees they pay to state-owned transmission company Cordia. A much smaller sum, about $11 million, was set aside to help publishers of news in ways that weren't quite clear. But months later, it still wasn't clear which media companies had got that money, or if some of it had been spent at all. One who did inquire about that was stuff political reporter Thomas Coughlin. Almost a year to the day since the government announced the COVID measures, he published the results on the Stuff website. And we'll look at those with him in just a moment. But while the $50 million of adrenaline was a handy help to some of our COVID-hit media companies, it was small change compared to the epic scale of the subsidies generated by the deal the government struck recently with the giant tech company Amazon to make a Lord of the Rings TV series here in the years ahead. This was also revealed late last week by Stuff's Thomas Coughlin. And aside from the subsidies possibly adding up to $1 billion over the five years, it showed that Treasury wasn't involved in calculating the special economic benefits, which would bump the rebate up to 25% of Amazon spending. And in a subsequent interview on Morning Report, host Corin Dan was audibly aghast when Minister Stuart Nash told him that he hadn't seen any Treasury input at all. Uh, I'm not too sure. I haven't seen the Treasury advice, to be honest. But one what? thing I will say, one thing I will say, I don't care what the Treasury advice would have been, well, it turned out that Treasury didn't actually provide any specific advice for this film project, but Treasury has been sceptical of the claims of benefits put forward in the past for such projects and has been concerned about the rising sums spent on screen subsidies. Last Wednesday, the Otago Daily Times said it's time for a wide-ranging discussion about subsidy priorities and the level of them, and New Zealand's attitude to this has also been noticed overseas. The Irish Times media writer Laura Slattery dubbed New Zealand's government Lord of the Incentives and said that the likes of Ireland and Scotland wouldn't or couldn't match New Zealand's commitment to subsidise uncapped spending by movie and TV companies. Again, Stuff's Thomas Coughlin was able to reveal relevant details of the Amazon deal by using the Official Information Act, but again, it was no simple matter getting those details or the details of how the deal was actually done. You think with the OIA that it's sort of like an algorithm. You know, you have a legislative entitlement to get this information. And so if you put in certain words into an OIA, then it will spit out the same thing. But it's not like Right, that. or they look at it and say, in scope, out of scope, here you go. Here you go. Shouldn't Ex- be that hard. Yeah, here are the redactions. But it's not like that. It's actual people, ministerial services. It's actual people doing this. So I thought, I'll, I'll call up, I'll ingratiate myself with the people who are doing my OIA. And I did. Then over February and March, and I'd call up and say, it's Amazon has been consulted on what has to be released, which oh. is... Amazon's consultation was taking um, a long time. There was a lot of back and forth. Um, at a certain point, 
it was decided that the final memorandum of understanding, the big thing that they were negotiating, they said, well, look, that's not within the scope of your OIA, um, but because you've waited so long, we're going to um, expand the scope to include that, and we'll give that to you as well. Uh, But would we know about this deal and how it was done if you hadn't? put in these OIAs? Would that still be available in the documents but hidden from our view effectively? Um, yes, I think so. These memorandum, memoranda, I guess, of understanding, you know, they're signed with any film company that spends over a certain amount of money and a certain amount of time in New Zealand. That was published. Um, I think it is proactively re- released, so you'd see it. They would not proactively release, I don't think, um, the documents um, if, if I had not OIA'd it. I think um, having dealt with a lot of proactive release, actually, um, one of the things that often doesn't get proactively released is communications. It, it adds so much richness to journalism if you if you know the people, their names. Um, also, for example, the, the government negotiating for a member of the New Zealand Film Commission to be escorted down yeah. the red carpet <laughs> at the series premiere and being given the opportunity to speak with interested members of the press. Mm, yeah, I'm sure there would be the person from the New Zealand Film Commission they'd certainly want to speak to on the day of the premiere. But the deal also commits Amazon to partnering with local firms in ways that are unique to this deal, um, talking about investment and innovation. I mean, that this is where the commercial sensitivity comes in. That could be used as a kind of veil to draw over if they don't really want you to see those parts of the, the negotiation. Yeah, it, it could be. And I've got to say there were, there were very few redactions, which I'm quite, I think that's really good, um, and in the spirit of the, uh, the legislation. But but yes, I mean, that that is clearly commercially sensitive. You can see the potential for it to be to be blocked from release. I'm glad it wasn't. Our, our government engages in commercial activity all the time. We've just seen this week the Transmission Gully, PVP, which is a commercial entity. We've had privatised prison services. In this regard, uh, you're, you're, we're spending enormous amounts of money. In, in some years, um, one in five dollars allocated in a given budget of new spending goes to the film industry. When, you, when you're talking about those sums of money, if, you're, if you are a commercial entity which is calling on vast reserves of government money, you have to sort of think, well, hey, I'm going to be subject to a higher degree of public disclosure here. That has to be part of the rules. One, of the, one thing I've been really disappointed by on, from Amazon's perspective is that they haven't fronted on this. I think um, if, if you're coming to a country and you're, you're claiming a, a massive um, subsidy, you probably have an obligation to that country, a moral obligation to that country's people to say, um, why? You just know when you're emailing them, you're not going to get a response. <laughs> That's it. Well, turning from the eye-watering sums in the Lord of the Rings uh, subsidies to the much more modest uh, sums spent by the government, a $50 million package uh, almost a year ago exactly, was it a straightforward exercise getting information via the Official Information Act about where all that money went? Towards the end of the statutory time frame, um, I was given an email saying that it wouldn't, I wouldn't be getting the information because it was about to be released um, publicly. That is a legitimate grounds for refusing an OIA. And then out of the blue, the day that I filed the second Amazon story, the Ministry of Culture and Heritage, they got in touch with an email saying, oh, here it is. Yeah. But, but one of the problems here was that the biggest chunk of that $50 million, just over $20 million of it, uh, is uh, that slice that went to broadcasters to give them a break on their transmission fees via Cordia, the state-owned trans- transmission company. So officials wouldn't reveal to you which broadcasters have claimed that money, citing Commercial sensitivity, uh, which I guess is not um, not unexpected. But aside from that, so there's still $30 million in play and just to make use of in ways that weren't clear. Was it easy to work out where that money went once they'd given you that information? Um, yeah, well, it was. It was in a spreadsheet, which made it very easy to, to collate. 
some assistance to really small publications, which I quite was interesting to see. Yeah, there were more than three hundred of them, all getting just under thirteen thousand yeah. dollars each. The same sum. What was it? The dispenser like that? I, so this was something I. Um, the story landed quite late. The, the OIA landed late in the afternoon on a Friday, so I didn't actually find this out at the time I filed the story, but I, I subsequently got back in touch with the Ministry of Culture and Heritage, and it's quite simple. Got a rough um, estimate of how many outlets they, that would be, there would be. They just divided the pool of money by how, much, how many outlets were going to claim it, and then um, they subsequently found um, other outlets which needed the money, so they raised the allowance and paid that to them as well. But uh, coming down to the, the lower level of that uh, $50 million announcement, there was $1.3 million earmarked for government departments uh, to take out subscriptions uh, effectively with online news services here um, operating paywalls. Um, and now your work shows that it actually ended up being about $1.5 million, so they spent a bit more. However, during yes. the COVID outbreak uh, or the, the, the lockdown, where things were really acute for the media, the likes of well, Stuff was actually appealing to its readers for mm. support, and they haven't, they don't have a, a subscription thing, so nothing for a government department to subscribe to. Um, some hard feelings at Stuff, perhaps, <laughs> that, I, uh... that you were not able to benefit from this, and you wouldn't have been the only one because there are other online outlets out there doing news um, that, that don't operate any kind of paywall. I remember with my colleagues at the time being like, what well, does this mean? You know, um, we're going to see a few more newspapers in the lobbies of, of ministries and stuff because we do, you know, you can subscribe to a, a stuff newspaper. But obviously not. <laughs> and finally, Thomas, you mentioned that both these stories came together and both on a Friday. I mean, that's a journalist bugbear, isn't it, that uh, stuff being released on a Friday, um, often when it's perhaps you know, sensitive or has been sought for a long time. Yeah, I mean, so the Amazon story was um, I was given a heads up that it was coming so I could clear my diary for it, and the, the big data set for Amazon came on the, the Thursday morning, and we put the story up on the Friday, which meant that the big Amazon story, the, the long negotiation story, I wrote on the Thursday night and the Friday. Which um, gave you the opportunity to talk about the dinners and trips to which, Waiheke Island. And yeah, and exactly. Because like that. the break of the MOU is, is exciting, but the, the, what you really want is the, sort of, the people behind it. Last year, the government got into a nasty habit of Friday afternoon um, dumps, and the discontent of many people was expressed, and they've stopped, so that's good. Always when you're holding people to account, you should um, give points for good behaviour, and that is certainly something that was bad and which has been fixed, so I'm grateful for it. There was Thomas Coughlin, political reporter for Stuff and a frequent user of the Official Information Act, which lately he's been using to shed light on where public money has gone and might go through our media. And we can hear more from him on film subsidies and that deal done with Amazon for Lord of the Rings over coming years in an upcoming edition of The Detail, RNZ's daily podcast co-produced with newsroom.co.nz. That'll be in an episode by The Detail's Emil Donovan, which is out next Tuesday. You'll find that on rnz.co.nz, the RNZ app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, that's all from the Media Watch team for this week. We'll be back again with Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Karen Hay on The Lately Show, and then back again with Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.